Hey guys, welcome to In the Trenches, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to entrepreneurs and CEOs running small to medium-sized businesses. In today's episode, I've again made a blog post available to you in audio form, which is what you're listening to right now. I've crudely called these episodes audio blogs, and I'm presenting them to you in case you prefer this format over the written one. If you'd like to access the written form of these blogs, you can do so at inthetrenches.net forward slash blog. Once you're there, feel free to subscribe so that you can receive blog posts in both written and audio form as they're published. In any case, regardless of how you decide to consume the blog material, I sincerely hope that something contained within is genuinely helpful to you along your own leadership journey. In this second edition of our Mythbusters series, I attempt to debunk a common misconception among prospective acquirers, particularly those looking to purchase a business for the first time. This myth states that the smaller the business in question, the easier it is to purchase and operate. In the audio blog that follows, I will attempt to explain why the exact opposite statement is likely true. That in fact, smaller companies are actually much harder to both purchase and operate when compared to their larger peers. Now, what constitutes a small or a large company is of course relative, so it's important to note that in both instances, I'm speaking of lower middle market businesses that typically generate anywhere between half a million to four million dollars of annual EBITDA. For purposes of the discussion that follows, I will define small companies as those at the low end of this range and large companies at the high end of it, though of course, in the grand scheme of things, both are rather small companies. It should also be noted that companies that generate in excess of, say, $4 million of annual EBITDA are both beyond the scope of this article and indeed beyond the scope of my own knowledge and experience. At some point outside of this range, or perhaps even at the high end of it, larger mid-market companies do indeed begin to present acquirers and operators with unique challenges not typically faced by those operating for their down market. And lastly, note that this audio blog is targeted largely towards individual entrepreneurs who are seeking to purchase a company and subsequently assume the CEO role. For that reason, my findings are probably going to be less applicable to situations in which, say, one business is contemplating acquiring another much smaller one. Challenges in buying a small business. It is often said that making a small acquisition requires just as much time, effort, money, and heartache as making a large acquisition. Indeed, this is one reason why mid-market private equity firms often don't invest in companies below a certain size threshold. The potential upside relative to the size of their fund is often not worth the time and effort required to consummate such acquisitions. I would actually take this sentiment one step further and suggest that it is actually much harder to make small standalone acquisitions than it is to make larger ones. This is so for many reasons, including those outlined below. And of course, these are generalizations, so exceptions will exist. First, the financial and operational data available to an acquirer of a small company is often in considerably worse shape than the information available to an acquirer of a larger company. In some cases, the data doesn't exist at all, and in others, it's scattered across multiple different systems, and in others still, it doesn't follow widely accepted conventions, like generally accepted accounting principles, for example. 
Second, in M&A processes, some small businesses either don't use a transaction advisor at all, or they use one who lacks the experience and sophistication that's required to efficiently consummate such transactions. Sometimes this is because advisors don't take sell-side engagements below a certain threshold, again because of the asymmetry between the time and effort involved and the financial upside those efforts are likely to yield. Though some buyers may view an unsophisticated or a non-existent sell-side advisor as a potential advantage to be exploited, I would instead suggest that it's much more likely to be an impediment to getting a deal done. Unsophisticated or inexperienced advisors can be incredibly frustrating to deal with, can slow down the purchase process considerably, and can push for terms and conditions that fall well outside of those that are widely accepted as being market. Third, small businesses are much more likely than large ones to be run by an owner-operator who still plays an active and material role in the day-to-day -day operations of the company. This type of key person risk can be difficult for buyers to structure around, especially if they're planning to purchase a majority interest in the company in question. Fourth, in particularly small companies that almost by definition demonstrate this type of key person risk, buyers must gain comfort that they are indeed buying a going concern business as opposed to effectively just acquiring the seller's job, the former obviously being preferable to the latter. And finally, assuming that the acquirer eventually needs to realize a return on her investment through a liquidity event as opposed to running it in perpetuity, she will need to be confident that she can eventually grow the business to a size that is large enough to attract a large universe of potential acquirers on the way out. Now, as a very loose rule of thumb, many sources of traditional institutional capital tend to not really entertain opportunities where the company in question generates less than $10 million of revenue. A $3 million revenue business purchase today, even if it grows revenue at a compounded rate of 20% a year, which is quite a feat, is still only a $7.5 million revenue business five years from now. Challenges in Operating a Small Business In his book, Zero to One, PayPal co-founder and renowned venture capitalist Peter Thiel differentiates between a zero-to-one business and a one-to-n business. The former aims to create something entirely new, while the latter aims to copy or refine something that already exists. More specifically, he notes that the former is considerably more difficult than the latter, though of course both remain difficult. This may, at least in part, explain the extraordinarily low success rates of startup companies, which are typically of the zero to one variety, where it isn't uncommon to see 75 to 90% failure rates within only a few years of their founding. Now the basic insight here is that starting anything from scratch is incredibly difficult. When purchasing a small business, though you won't necessarily need to create the business itself from scratch, chances are you'll need to create several components of it from scratch. Though of course this can be done, I would argue that it's far easier to refine or improve existing teams, tools, processes, and systems than it is to create them from nothing. Larger companies tend to already have many of these things in place, and as a result, your job as the new owner will be to optimize and improve them as opposed to building them from the ground up. Now, I learned this the hard way when I purchased my own company in 2014, where we had to build both a sales and marketing team, among several other departments, from what was effectively a non-existent state. Before purchasing the company, we viewed the absence of these departments as a positive, and our rationale was that the company was likely to grow much faster once we did put properly functioning sales and marketing capabilities in place. 
While this thesis eventually did come to pass, building these two departments from scratch was much harder than we could have ever anticipated. It took many mistakes, much more time, and much more money than we had originally thought. It's also worth noting here that many proposed acquisitions in the small to medium-sized business ecosystem share a very similar investment thesis. Though the thesis can and often does have merit, it's almost always much more difficult, much more time-consuming, and much more expensive than any investment memo would have you believe. In addition to the fundamental zero-to-one risk, which I've just described, several other operating challenges may present themselves inside of very small companies. First, even if the company in question has high cash flow margins, because of their small size, these companies often present a dollar value of annual cash flow that can be insufficient to finance future growth initiatives. For example, if your company only produces, say, 400000 of cash flow annually, then unless you have easy access to other sources of capital, you won't have much money to finance the various growth initiatives that you're likely interested in pursuing as a new owner. Indeed, as few as two senior management hires can consume the entirety of your annual operating cash flow at these levels, leaving nothing left over for future growth initiatives. Second, sometimes small companies are still small for a reason. Though it is possible the previous owner was satisfied with the previous size of the company, it is equally possible that the market is small, competitive, saturated, or contracting. It is similarly possible that true product market fit hasn't yet been achieved again severely limiting future growth opportunities. Third, you'll want to have a thorough understanding of where future growth is likely to come from in a small business because not all sources of growth are created equally. For example, in some industries, penetration of the type of product being sold is low, so most sales opportunities can be greenfield in nature, meaning that there's no need to replace an incumbent provider of a competing product, and this is obviously preferable. In other instances, however, the market may be more saturated, meaning that any new sale will require a customer to replace the product of an existing provider, and this is much less preferable, of course. Fourth, though some element of concentration is common to many small businesses, concentration, which can become a single point of failure depending on its magnitude, is pretty much by definition much more common in smaller businesses than in larger ones. This can leave a new owner effectively beholden to a single employee, supplier, or customer whose actions are largely outside of their control. Fifth, small companies often, though not always, underinvest in internal tools, processes, and systems, and even if they haven't done so historically, they're reasonably likely to outgrow the ones that they currently have in place. For companies like these, the profitability profile on their current set of financial statements may not represent the true profitability profile that the business will yield under your ownership, which may in turn leave you with even fewer dollars to pursue new growth initiatives. Sixth, another reason why historical margins often don't represent go-forward margins is because in many small businesses, the founder CEO gladly occupies several roles that would otherwise require one to four incremental hires under a new owner. Founders are often able to simultaneously play these roles due to their decades of company and industry experience, but expecting a new owner to do something similar is often very unrealistic. This is especially true if that new owner is a single individual and is doubly true if that new owner doesn't have much leadership experience of her own. And lastly, a small quantum or dollar amount of EBITDA provides new owners with much less cushion against the operating mistakes that they will inevitably make, particularly if the new owner is occupying the CEO seat for the first time. 
In a $2 million EBITDA business, a $250,000 mistake is painful, but ultimately very survivable. In a $500,000 EBITDA business, that same mistake not only cuts EBITDA in half, but could also put the company's liquidity position in meaningful peril. To put this number into context, it's worth reminding you that a single hiring mistake can easily cost a company $250,000, if not much more. And if you're a first-time CEO, it is a virtual guarantee that you will make a hiring mistake as you build out your management team. More likely, you'll make several of them, as I did. In sum, when a young entrepreneur sets out to purchase a small business with a view towards assuming the CEO role, she almost certainly feels some level of insecurity and uncertainty about her ability to actually do the job successfully, even if only at a subconscious level. In my case, it was at a very conscious level. In response to these understandable insecurities, she may look for ways to make the tasks seem less daunting, and too often these entrepreneurs think that buying and running a smaller business is one way to do just that. Unfortunately, these entrepreneurs are mistaken. Within the lower middle market, in my opinion, smaller companies are actually much harder to both purchase and operate when compared to their larger peers. In most cases, it is far easier to take a business from 1 to N than it is to take a business from 0.